I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2013. Please enjoy. The most important thing you need to know about this book is its title, 747. That's really all you have to say. This is a book about the 747 and uh, the talented men who created it. Uh, 747, Creating the World's First Jumbo Jet and Other Adventures from a Life in Aviation. The author is Joe Sutter, and he was head of the uh, team of engineers that helped to design and create the, the Boeing 747. And uh, he still is a consultant for Boeing, uh, makes his home in Seattle, uh, where Boeing is still headquartered. And uh, he is a, a well-known, highly respected figure in this industry. His book is a fascinating look at uh, aviation, at uh, what is involved in creating something like the 747, the sort of details which must be uh, observed, uh, the way in which all kinds of things need to fall into place in order to make a successful aircraft. And, of course, the 747 has been exactly that, one of the most uh, successful innovations uh, in aviation history and transportation history for that moment. Uh, This book is a Smithsonian book published by a division of HarperCollins. And Joe Sutter, I uh, welcome you to the morning show. Greg, thanks for inviting me. And I've really enjoyed reading your book. I'm excited to uh, talk to you about this. You were born in 1921, and in some ways you came along at just the right time. Uh, You were a a young boy when Charles Lindbergh made his historic flight across the Atlantic Ocean. But interestingly enough, while your friends were dreaming about flying airplanes, you were dreaming about something else involving airplanes. I had a paper route. I lived above the uh, old airport, and at the end of the paper, I'd go down, and I was fascinated by all of the flying machines, and then those days, as you say, it was early, so every time you'd go down, it'd be something different, and I really got very involved in wondering how they flew, why they flew, why they flew well, and why some didn't, and I was always had a bent for engineering, I guess, so I wanted to design them. I mean, it's just so fascinating to me. Something else that was completely news to me was actually how long Boeing has been in existence. I never would have guessed that this company was created back in 1916. So they were uh, on the scene quite early in 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 the in the era of 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 flight. Yeah, it uh, it was started by a fellow named Bill Boeing and. Uh, Boeing has always been uh, at the forefront of uh, airplane aeronautical design and innovation. Uh, he actually built a, the, one of the first seaplanes, and that seaplane carried the first international mail between Seattle and Vancouver. Hmm. So it, it's got a lot of history in aviation. Right. We've already mentioned Charles Lindbergh, and I thought you, you did such a good job of of helping us understand what a momentous occasion this was uh, in our history when he made that successful uh, flight between uh, uh, our our continent and, and, and Europe. And you say what happened almost overnight is that the United States became air-minded, that we yeah. were thinking about flight in an entirely different way. You know, prior to Lindbergh's flight, the Europeans actually, after the Wright brothers were 
more innovative and more interested in aviation. Uh, there is a lot of uh, foot dragging in this country, and Lindbergh flight really uh, brought aviation uh, to the forefront in the United States. You say just a year after his flight, and I think his flight was in 1927. Am I remembering that right? I think that's right. Um, yeah. You say a year after Boeing introduced its first true passenger airliner, the Model 80 Tri-Motor. Uh, with seating for 14 passengers and a stewardess who had to be a registered nurse. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating to think about those early days and probably the courage it took for people to, to climb aboard a plane. Yeah, I think um, many people were very, very uh, afraid of flying in those days, and they were really adventurers. And the people like Boeing that... Uh, decided to spend their money in that business, uh, really were adventures. Hmm. Tell us about the, the plane which really served as a great inspiration for you uh, in 1933. So you still would have been, uh, I think, maybe a, a, a teenager, a young teenager at that point. You saw the takeoff of the first Boeing 247. The Boeing 247 was really the first modern airliner. It was just a little bit after the Model 80, which was a fabric biplane, the Boeing 247 was an all-metal uh, airplane, no strings and wires. Uh, it had retractable landing gear and, and uh, controllable propellers, which was a very, very big step forward. Hmm. As was a ship two years later called the Boeing Model 299, also known as the Flying Fortress. This apparently was an extraordinary plane as well. When the B-17, as it was labeled, was first introduced by Boeing, it did not win the competition for the, uh, the bomber that the uh, U.S. Army wanted at that time. It was considered uh, too big and too, too big to manage by uh, the normal uh, situation. So the, the B-17 was uh, out of the box, if you will, and it was a... Uh, a startling invention. Yes. Something happens uh, not long after that which really ratchets up your interest in, in design, and that was uh, involving uh, the 314 Clipper. And um, I'm trying to remember what, what occurred Maybe it was some sort of a crash or some kind of big surprise, and Boeing's designers were trying to change the tail, I think, of the 314 to make it more controllable. And, and you, you sort of realized, watching all of this unfold, that, that uh, designers, uh, engineers, didn't always have the answers. And I, I, th I think you talk about how that made all of this even more intriguing for you. I went to the top of a hill so I could see Puget Sound because I knew the airplane might make its first flight. And the 314, which is a huge flying boat for its time, took off. It's a flying boat, and uh, it started to make a general curve, and it was flying inland. It was heading down to a town called Olympia, which is about 50 miles south of Seattle. And I was wondering, why is that flying boat flying inland? You know, it, it should stay over the water on its first flight. Uh, the reason it flew inland, it had two, two vertical tails on it, and they weren't powerful enough to help the airplane turn. And so the pilot made a very wide, gentle turn and finally ended up on Lake Washington. 
They then put a third tail down the, the middle of the fuselage, and with the three tails, it flew all right. But that intrigued me is, how did these engineers miss the boat? Hmm. And, uh, so I, I got sort of interested in, how do, you, how do you make these things work right? Right, and I remember at one point you, you vowed that someday you were going to be working on designing planes, and you were going to try to make them as safe as possible. You also had... Uh, during your military career, during the Second World War, a harrowing experience, I think, aboard the USS Edward H. Allen. And this also was uh, a, a, a kind of a transformative moment for you and, and helped galvanize you even more to, uh, to go into this field of engineering. Tell us just briefly about that. We were in the North Atlantic in the winter of, what, 45 and uh, we were coming out of Bermuda on a 70-degree day, and that evening the temperature dropped way below freezing, and a, about a 100-mile-an-hour wind was whipping across the waves. And the salt water was actually freezing when it hit the, the exposed parts of the ship. Uh, it was so cold, and we were collecting ice at an enormous rate. The, airplane, uh, the boat was really getting uh, uh, unstable. It was rolling uh, sideways uh, to like 50 degrees, and, and when it got out to 50 degrees, it just hang there. Uh, I read the uh, first lieutenant's manual of the, of the ship, which talked about ship stability, and read it to the uh, captain and the executive officer, and there we were talking about uh, what do we do, and, and we finally decided to keep the nose of the ship into the wind, into the waves, and pray that the engines would keep going, because if the engines quit and she went sideways, that was it. Uh, that impressed me that we depended very much on those engines. And so when I was thinking about airplane design, uh, you reached a conclusion, you don't want one failure to uh, put you in real jeopardy. And uh, that went into most of my design philosophy for 40 years. Hmm. You say at one point, reflecting back on our total helplessness in the fierce grip of that ice storm, I vowed to design airplanes that, to the greatest degree humanly possible, would continue to provide options and remain controllable for the crew, despite unforeseen circumstances. When you begin work with Boeing, your first project there you called an uh, ideal graduate course in airport design. It was not that you got to design something from the ground up, but you had to help fix some of the flaws in something that was already there, the uh, 377 Stratocruiser. Tell us about that plane and why it was such a valuable experience to have to uh, work out its bugs. I came to Boeing out of the Navy about... That airplane was just about finished its basic design. It had just started the flight test. Uh, many of the engineers at Boeing knew the jets were coming, so they were all pushing to get on the airplanes like the B-47, B-52. So some of us uh, young people had just hired in were given the job of uh, working with the flight test crew to, to iron out the kinks in the Stratocruisers. So I was able to work on engine cooling, uh, airspeed calibration, uh, flight controls, uh, power plant control, uh, performance evaluation. I got a, a, an edu uh, graduate course in, in the whole airplane. I covered the whole design of the airplane very quickly. And although I had nothing to do with the design, uh, I was trying to fix quite a few of the problems that the airplane had. So. 
I learned a lot in that short time. You said it required a lot of fact-finding and creative head-scratching. You also point out something which I think it's, it's, it's a, I suppose, a fairly obvious point, and yet it's, it's worth saying because otherwise I think it doesn't occur to most of us that every time you made any kind of change with the Stratocruiser in, in trying to work out some of its problems, the airplane would have to be flown yet again yes. to evaluate the results. I mean, there's no simple way to do this, and especially back then before the era of great computers and simulations, which might handle some of that. I mean, you had to make adjustments and then take that plane up in the air again. And uh, th- that helped my education because I flew on many of those tests, so I was able to get a direct evaluation of uh, what had happened uh, and, yeah, in those days, computers and all that machinery wasn't available to you, so it was all cut and dry. Mm. You, you talk about how the Stratocruiser was, was uh, as far as passengers were concerned, the best airplane of its day. But, uh, so, so it's not that it wasn't a beautiful thing on the inside, but uh, problems with the engine and the propellers kept it from being as safe and as controllable, I think, as it needed to be. It had uh, a 28-cylinder uh, reciprocating engine, the biggest that was ever built, I believe, and uh, uh, that controlled a uh, controllable propeller, which had its mechanical problems. And uh, uh, it took a lot of work to finally shake that down so the airplane was usable, but it was never uh, as efficient as it should have been. And uh, that encouraged uh, the Boeing company that, that the future was in the swept wing and the jets. And, and I really think the Stratocruiser helped push Boeing into the uh, jet age maybe before its competitors and gave them an edge in the competition. Hmm. You talk about also how this experience was helpful because it had more to do with, it had to do with more than just engineering, that in particular you had to work directly with the company's airline customers. Uh, this is something that I think we, ne- we need to talk about just a little bit, the fact that Boeing makes airplanes for airlines, and, and they are really your customers in a sense, and, and you need to make them, you need to satisfy them and their needs and desires, and uh, that's no small matter. No, and uh, I had a lot of education in, in working with the... Uh airline people and understanding how to try to understand them. And in addition to that, uh, the Stratocruiser was the first uh, uh, big airplane that was going to be certified. Uh, the whole During the war, nobody was building or certifying airplanes. So uh, the Stratocruiser was a learning experience for both. Uh, it, it used to be called the CA, now it's the FA. And Boeing, and so I, I got to work very heavily with the uh, FAA and uh, learned their part of the business. So it, it helped me immensely uh, later on to, to understand what the airline needs and also the requirements of the FAA. Hmm. You came uh, to Boeing not long before what you call in Chapter 4 of the book The Jet Age and some of the exciting breakthroughs which allowed uh, planes to tr- to fly far faster than they ever had before. Um, help us understand what, what some of the technical problems were or challenges in, in achieving this kind of high-speed air flight. The, the, the biggest challenge is with the uh, 
swept wing and the jet engine where the airplane was flying very fast, uh, fairly close to the speed of sound where a lot of uh, interesting phenomena happened uh, to the aerodynamics of uh, the wings and control surfaces. The other problem, though, is the uh, it didn't have propellers to help stop, help stop the airplane on the runway, so the airplanes were sort of slippery that they, they needed a lot of runway uh, and, and didn't have the margins that the old propeller airplanes had. So those two items were the, the two big challenges for uh, the airplane designer. Hmm. One of the uh, great breakthroughs was uh, the turbine engine, and you talk about a couple of things which made them... Uh, uh, in some ways, at least, uh, preferable to uh, to the uh, turb- to the uh, piston engine. Well, the, the jet engine is a very very simple device. It's just a, a compressor, uh, burner cans, and, and turbines. Uh, uh, instead of carrying large quantities of oil, you just uh, have to feed a few bearings. Uh, it has no uh, moving parts uh, like pistons that uh, are operating at very high temperatures and a lot of friction involved. Um, so it's it's a simple to design and simple to understand. And and the turbine engines, the turbine engines of today on the uh, airplanes like the 747, uh, you very 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 seldom do you have a uh, an engine problem. The shutdown rate of, of turbine engines is phenomenally low. Uh, many airline pilots that have been flying jets for 15, 20 years never, ever had to have to shut down an engine. And that's why now over the ocean, airplanes like the uh, 767 and 777, the new twins of Boeing, are all certified to fly over water for long periods of time. And uh, uh produced a very remarkable uh, safety situation for air travel. Air travel is uh, like where we're, where we're sitting here now. There are, I don't know, three, four, five hundred airplanes up in the air flying all over the world uh, by maybe a hundred different airlines, uh, and people take it for granted. Uh, an airplane accident now is really a shock when they ha- because they happen so in- infrequently. Hmm. You you talk about Boeing's wonderful breakthroughs with the Dash 80 and then the Boeing 707, and you attribute this to a, a number of different important factors, including some, some visionary leaders at Boeing and so on. But one of the factors which you also say spurred on Boeing to achieve some of these great successes was one of its biggest competitors, Douglas Aircraft. Tell us why Douglas... Uh, and its attitude that you think made such a difference uh, on, on Boeing's behalf. Douglas, during the war, was given the job of building transport airplanes like the DC-3 and DC-4. Uh, Boeing was given the job of building bombers like the B-17 and B-29. So at the end of the war, Boeing had nothing to offer to the uh, commercial market. Uh, they did develop the Stratocruiser in a hurry using the B-29 wing, but when the, they decided their future had to be in the commercial business to a great extent, so they pretty much made a, a commitment that that was the way to go and that the turbine engine and the swept wing technology was a real leap forward and they should uh, j- 
jump on that quickly, and that's why they built their own prototype jet called the 367-80, and it turned into the uh, 707. But Boeing was led by uh, very visionary people, uh, Bill Allen, uh, Wellwood Beale, uh, Ed Wells, George Shire. Uh, the, one, one example, uh, during the war or and before the war, they decided speed was important. Jet engines weren't even talked about, but they wanted to build a wind tunnel because uh, depending on government and, and the university wind tunnels was slow and uh, uh, you couldn't get data very fast and you were at the mercy of their scheduling. Boeing spent their own money to build a transonic wind tunnel and they designed it so that you could test airplanes up to the speed of sound. This was before jet engines and swept wings were even known. That gave Boeing a real edge when they wanted to develop the Dash 80 and the 707. They had their own wind tunnel. They could get data very quickly, and the 707 turned out to be a superior airplane compared to the Douglas DC-8, where Douglas reluctantly decided to get into the jet age uh, a little bit later. Hmm. Well, and their whole attitude of kind of being so dismissive of you and your colleagues at Boeing, I mean... The fact that they looked at you so derisively just spurred you on to work all the harder. Well, you know, there was a Fortune magazine article that uh, hits that point. Uh, Fortune was talking to Douglas and Boeing about their uh, aspirations in the uh, airplane business. And one Douglas fellow was asked about, you know, uh, the salesmanship of Douglas and Boeing. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, our people are professionals. They go in and neatly pressed suits, uh, and they know the airlines, they know how to talk to them. Uh, when Boeing sends salesmen in, they're usually engineers uh, with wingtip shoes. Well, I was an engineer. I didn't own wingtip wing tip shoes, but I thought I'd go out and buy them. But uh, that remark really did spur the fellas on to maybe show those fellas down in Santa Monica we, we had something on the ball. Hmm. We're speaking today with Joe Sutter, and his book is called 747, Creating the World's First Jumbo Jet and Other Adventures from a Life in Aviation. As we read about some of these great innovations done at Boeing, one of the things that becomes clear is that it was not just a matter of Boeing engineers sitting in a room dreaming up what the next innovation should be. A lot of this was driven by uh, what the airlines needed. Uh, for instance, uh, in the jump from the, I think, the 707 to the 727, it was that the airlines needed a different kind of jet that could be used for a different sort of flight or that could land in a different sort of airport. I mean, a lot of this was, was driven by those kind of factors from the airlines asking you to come up with the next big thing. Yes, the 727 is a good example of that. Uh, the 707 had proved proven that uh, jets were their way to go, and then they could do a good job on New York to L.A. and over the ocean, but they didn't have the uh, takeoff and landing performance to get in and out of smaller fields. Uh, some people were designing turboprops to do that job, but again, Boeing felt the jet was the way to go, developed a whole new flap system for the wings to allow the approach speeds of the jet to... Uh, be lowered, and that was uh, something that again came out of Boeing's wind tunnel and analytical work. Uh, I worked on that airplane. I did the uh, tech 
technical staff stuff. And one of the uh, great thrills for me in my life was we wanted to prove to LaGuardia Airport in New York that the airplane could have the characteristics to handle it. And uh, we, in a very windy day, we took the airplane into uh, LaGuardia, and uh, there was a stack of airplanes below and above us, and the air traffic controllers were urging everybody to expedite their uh, getting into the stack. And uh, he was, the controller was talking to a Constellation pilot behind us uh, to uh, accelerate and his uh, approach. And the Connie pilot said to the controller, well, if you could get that big slow jet out of the way, I would. Well, that was music <laughs> to our ears. Very good. Speaking of music to your ears, uh, you are actually, I think, on vacation with your wife in 1965 when a phone message is relayed to you that Boeing is interested in having you head up the design team that will be responsible for something absolutely unprecedented, the first jumbo jet, which, of course, came to be known as the 747. Uh, what a stupendous moment for you. Yes, I was uh, in the middle of helping design the 737, the, the small twin-engine airplane that's very successful now. And uh, I received this call on my vacation to... to Start studies on an airplane that Pan American basically required. They they had a lot of success with the 707, and they said it was getting small fast, and they wanted something bigger. So I had a small study group after that vacation, and first thing we did was go out and visit Pan Am and Lufthansa, British Airways, Qantas, Japan Airlines, several of the uh, major carriers, and you know, reveal to them what we thought we could do. And we asked him one question, how big should the airplane be? And, you know, we're, the 707 is a little over 100 seats. We thought they might say 150, 200, or something like that. We showed them data for three different sizes, uh, 250, 300, and 350 seats. They all voted for 350. Sort of put us in a state of shock. Hmm. That's a new ball game that nobody had even considered. Hmm. So we came home and started working on the drawing board again. It was something exciting, especially in that it was going to be an entirely new design, an entirely original uh, design. And, and that had to be uh, an, an exciting but also maybe kind of intimidating prospect for you and your colleagues. But when you were asked the question to build a 350-seat airplane and with the 707 having a little more than 100, the whole thinking of the whole industry was just put one fuselage on top of another, double-deck the airplane. And my people started out doing that. Uh, the, at Pan Am, one trip, their chairman, he was intrigued with it. it, it it's sort of a... Uh, it, people are attracted to something like that, you know, and uh, uh, they thought that was just wonderful to do something like that. So, Well, something kind of outrageous... I mean, this was going to be a plane two and a half times bigger than any previous airliner. I mean, that's a huge leap forward. Yes, it, it, it was. When we got into these studies, we felt a double-decker had so many problems, there must be a different solution. And the uh, fellows working with me came up with what we called the wide-body concept. And uh, uh, that was what we settled with when we approached that to our own management and to Pan American and others, uh, 
they were reluctant to accept it. They didn't want to give up that double-decker, but we built some mock-ups and showed them the comparisons, and all he needed is one, one look to decide that the wide uh, single-deck airplane was the way to go. But it was a little bit uh, tenser for a week or two before we got them on our side. I guess part of, uh, as I read about that dispute about whether, sh- I mean, uh, a, a double-decker, probably for the typical passenger, they would have felt like they were on any other airplane. It wouldn't have felt much different. It would have been like just the old fuselage piled on top of another one. Yeah. But for the passenger sitting there, it wouldn't feel different. Whereas, of course, to sit in a 747, you are sitting in an airplane like no other, like no other airplane you even knew could exist. The, the 747 really has very high passenger acceptance. Uh, the airplane is very stable, uh, but... People feel like they're more uh, sitting in a living room, not in a uh, cocoon, and uh, it's it's still one of the most uh, desirable airplanes from the passenger standpoint. And uh, the wide single deck gives you the opportunity to do it because the ceiling can be higher, and uh, the equipment, the galleys and lavatories can be put in various parts of the airplane to split the airplane up so that you're not looking at a long tube, you're looking at your own compartment. Right. One decision you made uh, was that the 747 should be designed not only with passenger use in mind, but also to be used as a freighter. Tell us for a moment about that decision and, and what kind of design decisions had to be made to accommodate both of those purposes. Well, the, the 747 still today is the only airplane that was from the start designed as a passenger airplane and a freighter. And the reason for that is, too, freight was beginning to become an important industry, but the supersonic transport was also being developed at that time by, through a government program. And a lot of people felt the supersonics would replace the long-haul passenger jets. So uh, it was decided that we better cover that bet by also designing it as a freighter. That helped us. The, the double wide double, the wide single deck airplane helped us on that design because we could put two containers side by side. And uh, I think that decision was probably the most important decision we made to go to the wide single deck because today the 747 is the main line of freighter. All of the major freight carriers have 747s, and uh, even with high fuel prices, uh, air freight is a, is a growing business. Uh, the airplane has, carries containers side by side. We put the cockpit above the main deck so we could have a nose door. Uh, the airplane has a nose door and a side door, so when it uh, lands at a freight terminal, those two doors are used to expeditionally get the freight off the airplane. The 747 can fly 16 hours a day uh, utilization, which is uh, enormous, because it, it doesn't have to sit on the ground very long. It can load and unload very quickly because of that arrangement. Hmm. And uh, that decision was probably the most important one we made. We maybe didn't think it was that important when we made it, but it cer- certainly turned uh, turned out great. I want to make sure I understand something. If, if a 747 is is being used as a freighter, I assume it is not being used as a, as a passenger 
playing at that moment? I mean, it's used for one or the other, or, uh, or, or can it serve both functions simultaneously? There are many, many versions of the 747. Some are pure passenger airplanes. Uh, some are uh, pure freighters. Uh, some airplanes have a, a side door and the aft fuselage. The front of the airplane is a, a passenger airplane. The back end is a freighter. Some are convertibles. Uh, by putting the airplane in the hangar for a day or two, you can strip out all the passenger equipment and put the freight equipment in. They call them convertibles. Uh, the, the airplane has an enormous amount of uh, versatility. One of the interesting uh, things that was done with the 747, the Japanese were using 727s to fly people from, like, Tokyo to Osaka, their major cities. And that airplane was very popular. It became very, very small very quickly. And they asked the, air, the uh, manufacturers for studies on, on uh, larger airplanes. And, and again, people looked at an, a new airplane with maybe uh, 100 more seats. Uh, one of the designers that worked for me said, why not use the 747? Well, using a long-haul airplane for short-haul didn't look like it made more sense. But when we got into it, we could very easily change the engineering of the structure uh, so that the 747 could be used for short haul, and there's a must be about 75 of them in Japan now flying 550 people a trip uh, around Japan. is a very, very successful airplane. The airplane has a lot of versatility. Hmm. Now, help us understand what you and your other engineers were contending with in trying to create a plane which was this large and yet would be safe. I mean, uh, what were the sorts of, of, of things that had to be balanced? I mean, if you were going to have a plane that was wide enough to accommodate 10 seats uh, side to side and, and, and two aisles, uh, then what did that mean in terms of other parts of the plane to, to make it possible for, for such a plane of such dimensions to get off the ground and to, to be landed safely. Well, the, the, the most important aspect for performance takeoff and landing is to have a proper wing and flap system and an adequate thrust on the engines. So uh, the engines were being developed at that time, and Pratt Whitney was a, a developer. They had a short time span, and the engine wasn't perfect when it first came out, but it finally shook down and did the job uh, the flap system, again, is a Boeing innovation, uh, a new type of uh, leading-edge device that came out for takeoff and landing and, and huge trading-edge flaps that actually had three segments. So the approach speeds of the 747 on landing are the same as the 707. Um, some of the other things you have to think about, though, when you're carrying 400 passengers and you're required in an emergency to get them off the airplane quickly, we put all of the uh, galleys and toilets in the middle of the airplane so all of the doors were easily uh, visible to the passengers. We put five doors on each side, all identical in, in size and operation, uh, so that a, a pastor, when he's sitting there, he had a choice of going for any one of four doors. Uh, and, uh, that you know, you hope you never have to make an emergency evacuation, but it's that one in a 10 million time that you have to design an airplane for. Uh, we, we 
to make sure the airplane was safe even when things went wrong, we put four different control systems and four different hydraulic systems driven by four different uh, uh, engine drives. We split the elevators into four segments, the uh, rudder into two, the ailerons into two, and the spoiler segments into about four, so that if any one system failed, the pilot would get a, a, a warning light, but he wouldn't hardly feel that uh, anything different in the airplane. And even if half of the systems failed, the airplane is still a good flying machine. The airplane is very stable and very controllable, uh, but with this uh, this system redundancy, uh, the, the pilots uh, can bring the airplane home when a lot of th- bad things happen to it. Hmm. Were you always absolutely certain that this was going to be possible? I mean, for, for Boeing to create uh, a, a jetliner this large that, that was that was really going to be able to work and, and work efficiently. I mean, as an engineer, was it possible for you to know that, yes, we can do this? Or was that, for any meaningful amount of time, a significant question in your mind? No, we knew we could produce an airplane that could meet its requirements except for one item. As you start designing an airplane and you're working on fuselages, wing control systems, uh, engine mounting, and all that, and, and all of the various uh, different functions start feeding in the, the data they're designed and you start adding the weight of the airplane up, invariably she starts to get heavy. And a heavy airplane, if you build an airplane that's overweight, uh, you're dead so that uh, you have to keep reiterating the design to get that happy compromise between meeting all of your requirements and having the airplane efficient. And that was one of the big battles that I fought for the couple of years of design we had on the airplane to to keep weight under control. Uh, It's an endless job for airplane designers. But we, we knew we could make the airplane work technically, if you will, of course, nobody knows when you introduce a new airplane how it's going to respond in the market. And uh, we knew we had a good, efficient airplane, but it was up to the airlines to show how it fit into the marketplace. Hmm. You do mention in the book that this project, the 747, came at a time when Boeing itself was already overextended, uh, I think, in terms of its finances and resources and so on. So that was one thing which made already a stiff challenge, even even more challenging. The, the uh, airplane, you know, the 737 was, as I pointed out earlier, was in the middle of its design. Boeing was working on an improved 727. Boeing had the government contract to design two prototype SSTs, and Boeing also was working very heavily on the Apollo program after that accident that uh, killed some astronauts. So they were tied up resources-wise very heavily, especially in, in engineering. The 747 came out, you know, it came under the block later than all of those programs. So it was a real fight to get people, uh, to get uh, engineering space, to get into the wind tunnel. And that was the uh, one of the toughest jobs I had in the program. Uh, Boeing was eating up money pretty fast, and there was a recession. The airlines weren't ordering much at that time. 
I was asked at one time to drop a lot of engineers, and I got a set of ground rules from the management as to what I was required to do. And first run of that was I needed more engineers, not less, and I had to go down and tell that to the chairman of the board of Boeing, uh, the president, the president of the commercial company, and my own boss. And, and I was asked to do this very quickly because Alan was leaving town. I had no chance to tell all of my, any of my leaders what the re end result of my study was. And I put them all into a state of shock. And when I ended that presentation, uh, Bill Allen turned to T. Wilson, the president, and says, well, I'll leave the problem with you, T. I've got to catch an airplane. <laughs> T. Wilson talked to my boss, Tex Bullion, who was the head of president of the commercial company, said, Tex, I wanted to see you. I saw the two of them walking down the hall, and nobody else would talk to me. And I figured, well, they're talking about who's going to replace me. And that was a dark, bad day in River City for me. Hmm. Fortunately, uh, you you survived that, and uh, and uh, your team remained intact, and uh, you were able to proceed. You were under a challenging timeline, 28 months yeah. uh, to design an airplane from scratch. You say if there's anything you could have changed about all this, it would have been that that oppressive timeline. Yes, yeah, we... Uh when we rolled the airplane out, <clears throat> it looked complete on the outside, but we had a lot of work to do. And we put the airplane into the paint hangar in, in October, and we finally flew it in February. Again, uh, some people wanted to fly the airplane on uh, uh, December 12th, the anniversary of the Wright first flight. And you always get pressures like that, you know, people thinking of publicity and that kind of stuff. And again, uh, we just, so the airplane's in parts from the paint hangar. It's not ready to go, and uh, that wasn't uh, very s uh, news anybody wanted to hear, but uh, you've got, you got to do what's right. And right. When we flew it on, uh, in February, she was a good machine. You know, it's interesting when you, when you say that they wanted to drop 1,000 engineers from your program working on the 747. That, it's an astonishing number. I mean... We, that means that more than, well more than 1,000 engineers were all working on this project. That tells us right there just what a complex undertaking this all was. When that was happening, uh, there were 4,500 people working in the engineering department on the 747. Hmm. And uh, the head financial officer of the company tapped me on the shoulder after one meeting. and He said, you know, Sutter, your engineers are spending $5 million a day. And uh, I, under my breath, I said, you know, I could be doing a better job if I could spend $6 million a day. <laughs> but I didn't dare do that. You know, you, you do mention the fact, too, that, that um, uh, you, you, you felt frustrated that, that uh, you didn't always have the full attention of senior management at Boeing because they were dealing with a, a lot of other things, and that, among other things, the SST was in early stages of development, and that was really kind of hogging the, the, the spotlight. But you said that there was actually freedom in the shadows and that you were able to, to take advantage of it. I mean, there was something to be said for, for working in some obscurity on this important project. It, it gave us uh, more time to work and less time to have to go down and, and uh, make presentation store management because they were... Heavily involved with the, the SST was a government-controlled program, and 
I'm sure you notice today on any of these uh, government programs, there is an enormous amount of oversight required. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the management of Boeing was back in Washington, D.C. quite a bit, uh, working with the FAA, who was managing the program for the government. And, and, and it, it did, there were times when maybe we felt neglected, but uh, looking back on it, uh, that was better for us because we could work more effectively. One part of designing an airplane is you're always presenting uh, how the program's going, what the budget looks like, what the schedule looks like. Uh, that takes a lot of time. One of the things which is uh, so exciting uh, and extraordinary to think about is the fact that Charles Lindbergh lived long enough to see the 747 for himself, and he had high words of praise for it. Yes. He actually he was a consultant for Ron Tripp. They were very close. He, Lindbergh helped open up some of the South America and, and Pacific routes for Ron Tripp. He flew those routes on, on survey flights. And... Uh, when the airplane was being developed, Juan Tripp heard these messages, will the airplane fly, and, and uh, he, you know, he sent Lindbergh out twice on a very private meeting with me. They both took about an hour where I discussed two subjects mainly, the, the landing characteristics of the airplane, getting it back on the ground, and the other one was uh, how would the airplane react in high-speed flight when it gets in close to the speed of sound, 0 0.85, 0 0.9, 10th Mach number, you know, would it have to control problems? And I I had collected the data from my people and uh, would, took Lindbergh through that. He asked a lot of intelligent questions. And when, he, when it was done, he said, well, thank you. You've given all the information I need. And we shook hands. And he went back to New York. And we never heard an, anything back from either one of those so we assumed we had satisfied him, but uh, it was great to actually meet him and, and understand him as a, an engineer as, and as a human being. He was a very good engineer. Hmm. Well, that and many other inspiring stories are part of this fascinating book. Uh, the book, again, is called 747, Creating the World's First Jumbo Jet and Other Adventures from a Life in Aviation, a book which we should also uh, mention includes uh, an interesting chapter at the very end in which uh, the author is asked to uh, help investigate the Challenger disaster. Uh, the book is a Smithsonian book published by a division of HarperCollins, the author, Joe Sutter. Joe Sutter, I congratulate you on all that you have accomplished in your long and impressive life and for telling the story of the 747 so uh, beautifully in this book. Congratulations and best wishes to you. Thank you very much for asking me to talk, Greg.